Welcome to the Jesus Christ, Our Savior and Redeemer podcast, presented by BYU Speeches, featuring BYU devotionals and forums that testify of Christ's teachings, His life, ministry, and mission, and His sacred atonement. Be sure to check out our other podcasts by searching BYU Speeches wherever you get your podcasts or by visiting speeches.byu.edu slash podcasts. Brothers and sisters, we're still, my wife and I, experiencing jet lag, having returned only within hours from Jerusalem. The old Jerusalem, which is now rapidly becoming new. Heavy on our hearts, therefore, is what we experienced there. And I would like to share with you, if you will permit in an ambling fashion, some of those impressions tonight. May I say first that there is a prophecy uttered by the Prophet Joseph Smith in 1833, which is, in fact, being fulfilled before our very eyes. To wit, Jerusalem must be rebuilt, and the temple, and water flow out from under the temple, and the waters of the Dead Sea be healed. And all this before the coming of the Son of Man. On first touching that ground with our feet more than a decade ago, I think I had a prejudice that the setting of the Savior's life really was not significant that the meaning of his life and his words was what mattered, and that the events in the environment and circumstances of the time were not crucial. I can say to you in candor that after many visits since, for we have both visited and lived there, I am of the contrary opinion that he cared very much about the setting, and that meaning is lodged still in the very rocks, in the very mountains, in the very trees of Israel. This time we had a group mostly of persons we would consider young, but there was, uh, on an earlier trip, a woman past. 82, who had had to prepare at length exercise and get constant reassurances from her physician as to whether she could endure the rigors. And we were touched that as we walked away from a church that has been built near and some say over the ancient site of Gethsemane. She who had come so far and lived so long was on her knees near the place where tradition says 
Jesus knelt. North of Jerusalem is the Galilee. And I am struck, I was again this time, visiting there that the location of Caesarea Philippi is at the mount called Hermon. Some possibility assigns it as the Mount of Transfiguration. But it is in any case at the headwaters of the Jordan which then feed the Galilee which in turn flows south and is literally the nourishment of all Israel. It was there, and I think he chose the place carefully, that he announced to Peter after Peter's confession that he would build his church as on a rock. I think it is significant that there is there still a huge faced rock and below it and in it a cave, and that out of that cave at the time Jesus stood there, there flowed water. Not so since an earthquake changed all that. But was he therefore saying to Peter, whom he knew was to be his presiding apostle by revelation, and of Peter, who by revelation had recognized him upon this flowing rock, I will build my church. Well, such are the suggestions of the setting. Is it also, one may ask, only happenstance that he chose to be baptized near the waters called dead at the lowest point of the earth, 1,200 feet below sea level, descending thus even physically below all things. There are trees in Israel, and we are taught from the record that each, in a way, was significant in his ministry. Palm trees, fig trees, oak trees, but most of all, olive trees. And even to this day, the process of planting, cultivating, pruning, harvesting from olive trees is a laborious one. And the process of then taking the olives, which at first are bitter and useless, and going through another step of hard labor and pressure to produce ripe, mellow olive oil, that too is done today. And the recognition that in the time of the Master, olives and olive oil and the olive mash that resulted from the crushing were the very essence of life. All that comes clearly to mind as one stands there. Indulge me for a few moments further on the background of the very idea of trees. Religious literature is clearly and singularly impressed 
The notion that somehow there is a tree of life representative of eternal life that is somehow planted in a goodly land. Some traditions say on the very navel of the earth, the highest point of the earth, which symbolically at least is the mount, the temple mount in Jerusalem. A tree planted and watered by the waters of life, whose fruit is the most precious. Our own Book of Mormon says further of that fruit that it is sweet, that it is pure, even that it is white. And there are even now, incidentally, in Hebron, in Israel, ripe, magnificent vineyards where the fruit is, the, the very fruit itself, white, almost transparent. These happen to be the sweetest and the purest of the grapes. The imagery that it was so precious impressed Nephi after he was given the blessing of recapitulating the vision of his own father Lehi. And he said it when asked, yes, precious, I beheld, precious. But even that superlative didn't satisfy the angel, the narrator of the vision, who said, Yea, and the most joyous to the soul. Well, the tree of life has been utilized through sacred history as the symbol both of Israel and of the Redeemer of Israel. And there are traditions that in due time, that tree from which the branches had been ripped off and dispersed would somehow be planted anew and graftings and gatherings anew until the tree was again productive. Well, there is more to know about olive culture. It's interesting that the, word, the tree is not really a deciduous one. Its leaves never yield off. They are rejuvenated and stay. It is in that sense evergreen or ever olive-colored. It can be a wild thing without cultivation, but after long and patient cultivation, usually eight to ten years, it becomes productive. More than that, it continues to be with age, and there are trees today, for new shoots come forth from apparently dead roots that are known by actual horticultural study to be 1,800 years old. There may be trees on the Mount of Olives older than that. One could even say of the olive tree, it is immortal. As for the product of the process, not just olives to be eaten, not just olive oil used by many today in the Middle East simply as a condiment for salads or as a cooking device, 
But olive oil was the very substance of light and heat in Israel. And olive lamps, into which one poured the pure oil and then lighted it at one end, provided, even in a darkened room, light. Enough light. Moreover, the mash, as I have spoken of it, provided fuel and burned long. Not only all this, the balming influence, the soothing, saving influence of oil was well known in their midst. And the tradition about the balm of Gilead and of the soothing even of troubled waters was well known in Jesus' own day. We speak today of the olive branch as a symbol of peace and of forgiveness. Paul even refers to it as the oil of gladness, and it is in that sense also symbolic of joy. Did Jesus know all this? Surely he did. Was there something then significant in his choice of the mount known as the Mount of Olives? And was it true then as now that Mount Olivet was symbolic and sacred, all of it? Let me remind you now that on that mount four holinesses came together in a remarkable way. I speak first of the place. It was eastward from the temple, a temple which by now had been desecrated, a temple which he first called on a day of cleansing my father's house, but which later he spoke of as my house. And in that house was a holy of holies and two cedar wood, no, olive wood, pillars stood there as entrances, and they were, in fact, connected to the menorah, the perpetual lamp. And from them came two kinds of corridor or tubes into which were poured olive oil. Then it burned. There is a Jewish tradition that when Adam, close to the time of his own death, was debilitated somewhat, he sent Eve and his son, Seth, back to the garden for the healing oil. But at the threshold they were met by an angel who said, there will be no oil again until the meridian of time when the Messiah comes, and then the oil will be from the olive tree. There is also the tradition, and it's based on a scripture in Exodus, that Moses was commanded to teach the children of Israel to bring to him for the tabernacle olive oil, and then it said, pure olive oil, beaten for the light.
Such oil was burning in the time of Jesus, but it had lost its sacred significance or had not yet received its sacred fulfillment. He went on the mount overlooking the Temple Mount, as says the scripture, he was wont. Luke even says that in the last days of his life, he lodged there, he abode there, day and night. On that hill was a garden, but the word more properly is vineyard. A vineyard of olive trees, yes, precisely that same word is used in the parable or allegory of our book, Jacob, of the tame and wild olive tree. The Lord of the vineyard, Dr. Sidney B. Sperry believed and confided to me before his death, was the father of us all. The servant in the vineyard was the Messiah, and the task the weightiest in all history. It is called Gethsemane. Geth, gat, means press, and shemen in Hebrew means oil. The place of the olive press. You can see them still in Israel. For after the processes of salt and vinegar and pressure came a time when they gathered the olives, placed them in a bag, and then with a huge crushing rock to push it required usually an animal. They crushed those olives until the oil flowed. The place of the olive press. As for the time of which I speak, another holiness, it was the hour, the week of Pesach, Passover. We've been privileged to attend, even in our own day, that still kept and honored sacrosanct celebration, Passover. Since the destruction of the temple, it has been modified, but at the time of Jesus still. That was the day when they brought the lamb, the faultless lamb, to, and by the way, down that very mount to the altar, or if in some homes, to the home. And it was roasted, and the blood sprinkled on the altar or in the homes on the doorpost. That was the season, the time. And as now for the person, this was HaYeshua Mashiach. Jesus, the Messiah, a stem, so Isaiah prophesied, of Jesse, from the stump or the root, if you will, of the house of David. 
He who had been the revealer to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He who now had not only approached but sat upon Jacob's well, so the tradition says, and to a despised woman for the first time announced, I am he. I am he from whom shall flow living waters. Well, it was he who had been prophesied. And the word Messiah, as it is appearing today in the King James of Daniel, has roots of the Anointed One. Now came the night when he would become the Anointing One. Further, the word Messiah, as it is used by John in the Gospel, of John has another root, Sahar, meaning to glow with light, as one glistens when one is anointed, to earn the name, the holiness of the name he had. To trod the press. Now that image is used by Isaiah, but he himself uses it in our own time. In that remarkable summation revelation the prophet gave us at the very conclusion of the Doctrine and Covenants, he speaks of that verse and says he will say it again one day, I have trodden the press, in this case the wine press, but the two merge. I have trodden the wine press, and none were with me. I have trodden the wine press of the fierceness of the wrath of Almighty God. Now may I recount briefly, having spoken of the holy place, the holy time, the holy person, and the holy name, something, a glimpse of what must have gone through him and of what he must have gone through. Mine hour, he had said often, has not yet come, but now it had. And after the Last Supper, the episode ends, and it was night. That's an explanation I think we need no other for why the three, even though he pled, couldn't stay awake. But somewhere, somewhere on that mountain, he knelt. We have witnessed, and so some of you, the contemporary effort of the most pious of Jews.
as they stand, they do not kneel, but as they stand at the place that is but a remnant of the wall below the ancient walls of the Temple Mount. And they throw their whole bodies into their prayer rhythmically. And when occasionally they're ridiculed, they say something like this, we are fighting distraction. We want to concentrate. Movement helps. Well, the movement of that night, I suggest to you, was internal, not external. And somehow the bitterness, as bitter as gall, not just of the family of our Father that dwell upon this earth, but we have been taught by the prophet Joseph Smith of other earths also. So the atonement of Jesus Christ is, as Brother Maxwell has testified, intergalactic. That burden, that bitterness, he vicariously took within. How we can cry out, but a child can understand. Pain, even the presence of it to those of us who merely stand detached and observe, hurts. One as he was, who did not and will not take a backward step from the will of the Father, super-sensitive, could and did feel for and with us. The pressure worked upon him. Somewhere on the road between the north and the south, he cried out, anticipating, Oh, no, Father, Spare me this hour. We don't know how long the interim between that sentence and prayer and the next. But he then cried out, Father, for this cause came I forth, Father, glorify thy name. And the voice said, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. Luke, tradition says a physician, is the one who says that great drops of blood came from his pores. The bitterness oozed. It is not a spectacle one wishes to recall, but we have been commanded, and weekly we memorialize it in an ordinance called the sacrament. Even then, all his preparation and all that he could summon from his own strength was not sufficient. And more earnestly, says the record, he cried out, and an angel came, strengthening him.
strengthening, but not delivering. What is it like to have the power, to have been promised the power, to summon legions of angels, to end the ordeal, and not to summon them? He was during that same night betrayed. He was, after it, approached and taken prisoner. He was broken into, pierced by scourging. And the merciful reading of Pilate's motives in permitting that is that he hoped that would suffice for those who were crying out against him. It did not. The wait, I submit to you, had begun there on the mount. Much greater a wait than the weight of the cross that he was then to bear. Sitting on the stand tonight, your regional representative, Dr. Nelson, once he permitted me in a precious teaching setting in a hospital to put my ear down to a man who had just undergone surgery and who was now suffering radical internal bleeding. He wanted me to hear what he whispered. What he whispered was, I am thirsty. I thirst. Jesus said. And in response, and was it an act of appeasement or one of mockery? I do not know. Vinegar, a sop to his lips. In the inspired version, he doesn't just say, finally, it is finished. He adds, my Father's will is done. Now, brothers and sisters, what conclusions from all this? Let me say first that I pray that hereafter, when you speak or hear the words, I anoint you with this consecrated oil. You will remember what the consecration cost. I pray that as we sit, but in our spirits as we kneel at the sacrament table, and we are asked to remember his body you will recall that it was the veritable tree and olive beaten for the light, and that there flows from that mount unto this whole earth and beyond the redemptive power 
of healing and soothing and ministering to the needy. I pray that in the hours of gladness, should your cup run o'er, you will remember that to make that possible, a cup, the bitterest of cups, must have been drunk. I pray that day after tomorrow, when your life, the life of attempted faithfulness, is bludgeoned and becomes wearying, wearing and wearying, you will remember that no great and good fruit comes easily, that you are the olive plants who were supposedly planted anew in him, and that only time and suffering and endurance can produce the peaceable fruit which he yearns for you to have, and that he does not deliver until the perfect work has done its work. And finally, I pray that as you and I, the family of the living God, seeking to be what he said he was, the light of the world. Those who are the servants in the vineyard, and we go into the days of affliction which have on every level and through all the prophets been promised us, hard days, that we will remember that from that mount, in what most would have thought was the most tragic event of history, has come the source and power of purification and life. And that one day he will honor it again, this time descending in his glory. And when his foot touches it, this whole earth will know it. The mount itself shall separate, be shaken, and an earthquake will follow. The earth itself will be purged and cleansed and will itself shine with celestial light. And we are promised we may be there, either to descend with him or to ascend to meet him. And either of those is glorious. Over and over he spoke of himself as the bridegroom preparing his own for a feast, the feast we have been promised 
in our own doctrine and covenants, when all worthies who have been made worthy will gather. In the beginning of this dispensation, a revelation was given, and two men, not fully worthy, but beginning, cried out and received the message. Therefore, be faithful, praying always that your lamps may be, and now listen, trimmed, that means full, and burning, that means a light and a fire, and that you may have oil with you, that you may be ready to meet the bridegroom, and still later that you may abide the day. Brothers and sisters, my testimony. I bear witness that Jesus is the Messiah, and that he could not have known, according to the flesh, how to succor his people according to their infirmities, unless he had gone through in Gethsemane what he went through. I bear testimony that the knowledge he has today, what one of the prophets calls the bowels of mercy, reach out under the Father who grieves that any tree in his vineyard should be lost, and that he pleads even now for more time for you and for me, until we too have been purged and can sing the song of redeeming love. I bear my testimony that he lives and that he came to bring life and life more abundantly, and that he is our Redeemer. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. You've been listening to the Jesus Christ, Our Savior and Redeemer podcast, presented by BYU Speeches. Please check out our other podcasts of recent speeches, classic speeches, and BYU speeches compilations on overcoming adversity by study and by faith. Come follow me, love and marriage, and the prophet Joseph Smith. Go to speeches.byu.edu and click on podcasts for more information. You can also find all BYU speeches podcasts at your preferred podcast provider.